This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, as always, that hasn't changed. And honestly, it has been one of the hottest and most humid weeks this week. It's doing that thing in Maryland where it rains, but not enough to bring the temperature humidity down, just enough to make the temperature hotter and the humidity worse, because that's what everyone needs um, at the beginning of August. Uh, let's see, any other business for the show? Oh, yeah. Um, if you want a free sticker, Uh, because I have those now, please leave me a review on your podcast platform of choice and then send me a screenshot to titanictalkline at gmail.com. If you're in the United States only, I'm sorry, and you will get a free sticker. You can also, if you don't feel like leaving a review, uh, subscribe to the podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook. That is titanictalkline, all one word, the username. And that also gets you a free sticker. You just got to send me an email telling me you did it and verify it, and then you'll have awesome swag. That's all I'm going to babble at you for now. I'm going to let you get right into today's interview. And oh, I just punched my keyboard. Oh, that's fun. All right. What better way to sign off than that? Uh, well, I am really excited to talk to you because I have a feeling you know a lot more about things than I do. So could you do me a favor and introduce yourself to uh, the Titanic Talkline guests because they can't see you and I can? Yes, uh, I'm. Ben Blackwood, and I'm currently undertaking a PhD looking at the uh, tensions in the shipyards during Titanic's construction. That is absolutely fascinating to me because that's not something I ever would have considered even looking at. No, well, it's, it wasn't until I came across a documentary uh, called uh, Birth of a Legend, and it was about 2018. I was just coming to the end of my history degree, and I was going on to do a master's and thought, I wanted to do something Titanic related and wanted to contribute something new and uh, saw about the shipyard and thought there's much more that can be explored within the story of Titanic because it is a really fascinating story, the construction and everything that's going on in the Harland and Wolf shipyard. And I think it's overshadowed by the maiden voyage and the tragedy that then followed. And it gives everybody a new perspective as well about why she was such an important ship. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm looking into greater detail now. Awesome. What What's your personal like Titanic story? Obviously, by the time you get to this point where you know you want to study Titanic, you have at least some interest in it yourself. But how did you How did you come to the show? How do you? Yeah. What was your way of What was your way in? Well, I was born the year that the film came out. Um, so there we go. And so that was, uh, and that has always been. I've always been a massive fan of the film. And mm-hmm. that led me to it to just pique my interest further. In school, I was always reading books to do with Titanic. Anytime that they were in the library, I was there getting them out. And then as time went on, I sort of shifted away from my interest into Second right. World War and just came across that documentary and it reignited my interest and passion again. And since then, it's become an obsession for the last four and a half years. I think I've not really thought about anything but Titanic and uh, it's I enjoy finding out there's still things now that I'm finding out I never knew and that's what I always love is that there's always something new with the story yeah I think especially as um 
technology has been progressing, there's all these new ways to do tests and imaging and to find ways of, you know, bringing back new information. Um, I don't know if you've been paying attention. I think they've been posting on Reddit and in the Facebook group to um, the Ocean Gate exploration there. Um, yeah, they're doing their series of dives um, right now and bringing back all these ridiculously high definition photos of the Titanic. And it's amazing to see these things because again, it's just like, we have the ability to capture this. at such a definition now that it's extraordinary. Yeah. And I was watching a comparison on YouTube from when mm -hmm. Robert Ballard first made the discovery in 85. And you look right. at the quality of the images now when they're going over the bow section. And it's just amazing how far in the last, what we're going up to now, 40 years more, more how these images are now crystal clear it's amazing it is absolutely fascinating but you did mention that the construction of the ship and i agree with you is definitely overshadowed quite quite a bit by you know obviously the tragedy and the impact of the maiden voyage what is what are some of the things, like the most interesting things that you have found that have been that you wish people knew more about just that people don't don't know? Well, I mean, the story goes that in 1907, you had a meal in Belgravia in London at the house of Lord William Perry, who was the owner, uh, director of Harland and Wolfe at the time, and J. Mm -hmm. Bruce Ismay and his wife. And uh, over cigars and brandy, they put a plan together that they were going to take the challenge to Cunard and uh, build a new class of liner that was going to be able to hold more passengers and be much more luxurious. And that, from that point, 1907, was when you then started to see the keel being laid towards the end for Olympic. And the mm -hmm. designs were all there then. Three Olympic class liners, and they were going to challenge, they were going to be half as big again as Mauritania and Lusitania. Right. And um, yeah, so that's quite the interesting story. But I think there's other aspects. I mean, you have this whole new method of construction. You have these massive great gantries that were being built that dominated the Belfast skyline and clanging could be heard all around the city. Um, they work in six days a week. Sunday was the only days that they had off. And on those Sundays, the upper, uh, the upper echelons of the offices would bring their families down. So Thomas Andrews used to take his family down to go and see these ships being built. And you had all this new technology. So you had these floating cranes. Uh, I mean, very nearly, you had the First World War breaking out in the Belfast shipyard because you had the floating crane coming from Germany. And mm -hmm. the crane company would then fly this German flag from uh, the top of the crane. And the Irish shipbuilders were convinced that they were taking secrets back to the Kaiser and uh, leading information back to Germany as they were building their navy. And you had huh. almost this conflict breaking out. It's such an interesting period. Um, also, the conflicts between the Protestants and Catholics at the time. Uh, there was a minority right. um, employment rate in Holland and Wolf, and Piri openly stated as well that he would never knowingly employ a Catholic worker. So it's such an interesting period um, politically uh, in terms of religion as well, but an exciting time in terms of innovation and technology where you have these ships being built by hand. Right. And I mean, it's, it's such an all-encompassing story as well because all of these men put their hopes and dreams because Belfast was such a hostile place at the time. Um, they put all their hopes and dreams into these ships, hoping for a better life than what they were currently having. And 
eventually when she sunk and that dream died, it hit the city really hard. What happened to Belfast in the wake of the sinking? Because I think a lot of people think of things like what happened to the population of Southampton because a lot of the crew um, was from there, but there must have been a massive impact to the city of Belfast as well, to the Irish community. Yeah, uh, I mean, you had the Guarantee Group, which was led by Thomas Andrews, and they were a group of Highlander wolf workers that were given the opportunity to go into the maiden voyage um, to deal with any issues. And that allowed Andrews to make his plans for Britannic, which was then going to be their kill laid. Um, And it was an opportunity for them to see their ship in action. But I think there was a sense of embarrassment as well, because they'd built this ship that they'd said was unsinkable. And when she would eventually go on to sink, I think there was an element of embarrassment there as well as heartbreak that... Right. They thought they'd done something so amazing that ultimately, I don't want to say failed, but you know, it it went against what they would hope for. Um, right. But yeah, Harlan and the Wolf were hit hard. But then two years later, you had the outbreak of the First World War and you had military contracts being made. So they were, they carried on going for a war effort and mm-hmm. they went from strength to strength to building these bigger liners uh, you had then had Britannic, which was then being launched, um, and she was instantly requisitioned as a hospital ship. Yes. And then you know, the story, 1916, where she collided with the sea mine and floundered uh, just off of the coast of Greece. So yeah, that was an experiment that, I mean, at the end of the day, you had these three massive liners, and Olympic was the only one to survive and go on to have a storied history, as we all know. I know. And it's one of those things where people like to speculate that if Titanic hadn't become the Titanic disaster, that Olympic probably would have been the standout of the three. And in comparison, they may have all been sort of relegated to the minds of history, all three sister ships. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have sort of the the failure and the decline of the White Star Line afterwards. They never financially recovered from the sinking. And then you have the crash of 29 and um, being taken over by Cunard. So it was, they couldn't beat them and they were ended up being amalgamated to Cunard White Star. Wasn't that kind of a move to save both their companies? I mean, not to say that Cunard was really doing, I mean, not to say that Cunard was failing or anything, but by the time that that merger happened, weren't they both kind of heading towards a need for a drastic change? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, Cunard was given financial backing of the British government as well to stop JP Morgan from having a monopoly over the over the Atlantic crossings. And mm-hmm. especially in the First World War, when you have such an outlay for war and how costly that is, that funding dries up. So, right. yeah, I think it was a need uh, for both parties to survive. I don't know how like the funding of a ship works, but I imagine that it costs quite a bit up front to build something like Titanic, especially back in the day when they were they were literally like, we are sparing no cost on luxuries. We are getting top of the line stuff. So I imagine that they were probably planning on recouping a lot of the costs that went into building Titanic throughout its voyages over the years. And it sounds to me like part of the financial, like not ruin, but well, ruin. Part of part of the downfall was the fact that they lost the ability to recoup any anything they were hoping to gain back from that investment. 
yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, it's a business venture. You're not going to risk it if you don't think you're going to get the reward from it. Um, right. And White Star Line had quite a long and storied history with Harland and Wolf. They were partners um, for a number of years. So they always had that agreement that they were going to never spare any cost. And they had an agreement that it was going to be the cost of the build plus 5% on top for the payment to Harland and Wolf to commission mm-hmm. these ships. And wow. yeah, so it was, a, it was a contract that had always been the same terms. It was always going to be cost plus 5%. Um, and that's why I think you always have those questions of, was she built properly? Was the build quality there? And I think if you're a company like Harland and Wolf, that you base your business model of, we built the finest ships in the world. You're not going to risk that. Uh, you're not going to risk your reputation for poor build quality. Mm-hmm. And certainly from White Star Line's perspective as well, you're not going to hire a company that's going to cut corners when you're building the grandest ships as well. So right. I think, you know, in terms of her design, she was designed to have every conceivable safety measure. You know, you had the innovation of the watertight bulkheads. Um, granted, there weren't enough, but it was, I think, everything that was conceivable at the time went against her she had there's too many too many factors and i think that was ultimately what led to her downfall there were eight people that died before titanic was finished or when it was built right there was a considerable amount of deaths at the time but that was kind of sort of the norm at the time because shipbuilding was a pretty dangerous business what was it like if you were I'm a woman, so obviously I wouldn't be on a shipbuilder's lot in 1910 unless I was bringing somebody lunch. But what was the day there like? Like, what I imagine it was long, backbreaking, and hell ish. Like, what was it really like to build the Titanic? Yeah, they had such strict working conditions. Uh, they had an allotted time where they could have toilet breaks. If they went over, they were fined. Uh, you had to be at the shipyard by seven o'clock. If the gates were low, closed, then there was no pay. That was it. You you lost your opportunity. And it was so weather dependent as well. Um, if it was too windy, or uh, then work closed down for a day. Um, there was nothing that anybody could do. And it was long, grueling hours. I mean, um, the riveters had massive hearing issues at the end of it because of the constant clanging. Um, from day to day, you had such hot furnaces, and then you had the catch boys as well with the rivets. Um, they had the most dangerous job. Yeah. yeah, so you had the heat boys who would heat the rivets. They would then throw it up. It was the job of the catch boy to then lean over the railings to catch the rivets, put them in, and then they'd be hammered in. And at a time when there were no safety, oh, I can't see any way that could possibly. No, absolutely. Go wrong. And so the yeah, that was that was the. The, you know that was the major risk and it was the catch boys ultimately that were the ones that would be killed during construction because of the lack of safety measures because um, they didn't have like harnesses and ropes and hard hats like now no 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 you i think you know health and safety would have a field day looking at the working conditions at the time now um, <laughs> but yeah it was but back the then it's day, like it you money. would get fined if you didn't have a cigarette in your mouth yeah and it was the times were just so different it was it was yeah completely different times and the fact as well that you had those conditions and you were able to build a ship of that size and to me is 
I can't comprehend sort of how that was possible at that time. Um, but I mean, she was, yeah, like you say, you had a number of casualties, but at the time it was fewer than Harlan and Wolf had allowed for. They sort of allowed, they expected so many casualties over a short, over the period. And because it was below that quota, they saw it as a success, um, which, I mean, I don't know if I was in the offices there and knowing that several men had been killed during construction that I'd see less than what we were expecting as a success. But yeah, they saw it as, they didn't celebrate it, but they saw it as a as an, a success in a, you know, in a sense that, okay, yes, right. God, it wasn't as many as we were expecting. I mean, the last was on the launch day. Um, story of James Dobbins, he had uh, taking away the wooden battens that were holding her in place as they were getting ready to launch and he was crushed by falling timber. Um, yeah. That was one of the ones that was that went under the radar because at the time you had 100,000 people gathering in the Queen's Island Slipway, which is where she was being launched from, and nobody was aware that that was the case. He was snuck off and he was taken to hospital and Piri would then go and see later on. And that was later on when he would then mm-hmm. uh, die of his injuries. But, I mean... It's it was it was and people needed the jobs. That was the thing. I mean, Harland and Wolf were the largest employer in Belfast at the time. That's awful. At the peak when they were building, uh, constructing Titanic and Olympic, they employed fifteen thousand men. Three thousand, three thousand alone mm-hmm. were commissioned to build Titanic. So that gives you the size wow. and scale of these ships at the time, and the, how why they were so successful. And in addition to the people who built the literal superstructure of it, you also had the the i don't i don't want to use a term as though they're different kinds of people but like the quote-unquote artisans who made like the wood carvings for the the cherub and who would make i don't know the first class linens etc etc and you know the vast span of labor that was involved absolutely wild it was an international effort i mean you had the dutch Mm -hmm. company that supplied the wood for the first class cabins um and then in england as well you had the in the midlands um they were commissioned to build the anchor and that was that's an interesting story as well because at the time when they built the anchor it was the largest anchor ever built for a ship so they took it on a horseback carriage and uh took it on uh, braided it through the village and of course they couldn't take the weight of the anchor so the the trailer that they were towing it on collapsed great that was great yeah so that was so it's yeah, it was an international effort, and like I said, you had the German company that came in with the floating crane that in, uh, that fitted the funnels and helped with oh. the fitting out the stages. So it was an international effort. I think that's really neat, and it, I'm going to sound like an old, you know, a little old man yells at cloud for a moment here, but it's like they don't build ships like that anymore. They just literally don't. We don't build ships by hand anymore. It's outdated antiquated and slow you we would literally even if you wanted to recreate the titanic today it would literally not be done the way it was then you know i don't think any shipbuilding company today would justify the cost of say getting textiles from one country flown to another country to be hand sewn for first class and getting the china from another place for the second class and then all the linens from a third place for the third class and i i just don't think that it would fly Unless it was some like eccentric billionaire's pet project. Absolutely. And I think as well, I mean, these ships were built at a time when they were needed. You had mass emigration from Europe to America. Right. And they had customers that they needed to serve. Um, so these ships they were built, they weren't just built for pleasure and for grandeur. They were built for a purpose as well. And 
I don't think now you have the advancements of technology when you can fly to a country in probably right. in half the time. That need isn't there anymore either. It's it, it's, it's uh, the times have changed, and um, I mean. Titanic. She wasn't a sellout to begin with for her maiden voyage. It wasn't until they announced Captain Smith was going to be uh, captaining the voice at uh, the maiden voyage that the last ticket started to sell. So he was such a popular that. figure. Yeah, and well, because she was delayed so many times. I mean, you had mm. um, setbacks when Olympic collided with the British naval ship HMS Hawk. Um, That's right. So yeah, you know the silver she collided uh, because the propellers were so powerful, and at the time, British naval ships were built with a battering ram on the bow and she went straight into the side and ripped right along the plating of the keel and bent her out of shape every Uh, time i hear that story for some reason it makes me laugh because i picture a modern day cruise ship colliding with a navy tanker which i know is not what happened but in my mind it's like a carnival cruise liner running into a navy ship and it's very funny to me but that's not at all what it was like no absolutely i mean titanic again almost had a collision as well she was leaving southampton um so you had the New York liner that was moored up at the dock. Ironically. And she managed to she managed to rip the New York plus the dock with it uh, and to get the tugs in between them to keep them apart. So it's these ships were on another level to anything that was out there. Well, people had never dealt with something of that size. I mean, you know, the funny thing in, in Titanic is Rose goes, this doesn't look any bigger than the Mauritania. But even though it was, you know, quote unquote, only 100 feet longer, it's like that much more length, weight, height, size, heft, iron, steel, power makes a big difference. And as you pointed out, like people just weren't used to dealing with that power. So, of course, no one was expecting the Titanic to rip another ship away from its moorings. And, you know, I think, didn't they have to build special dry docks and special launching docks for these ships? Because they were like, oh, these don't fit. Like, they literally were dealing with something the size of which they they themselves were unprepared for. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, you have the dry dock where the Thompson Graving dry dock in Belfast, which was specially built for these ships. Um, right. And that was started in 1903, which... You know, it leads me to believe that this plan for these ships were dates back earlier than 1907. If you have this dry dock that's being commissioned in the early 1900s, there's obviously a plan in place at some point. So they knew to that build it was something happen. that and, fills it. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, again, William Peary wasn't a man that would just go and do it for the sake of it. He wouldn't spend outlay that sort of money. So there was obviously a plan in place at some point. And I think if it wasn't for the financial JP Morgan, backing of JP Morgan at the time, they may never have happened. You, you know, you, you just can't say. But the competition was at the time was that they were going to get it bigger and they were going to get heavier. And right. I think that was also with the oversight with the number of lifeboats was that the board of trade requirements at the time, it went by tonnage rather than the number of passengers. So that's why you had so few lifeboats, because the trade, the, the requirements at the time for the safety certificate, was based off of anything over 10,000 tonnes, you could only have this many, like you only needed this many lifeboats. Mm-hmm. But when you've got a ship that's got 2,200 passengers on board, it doesn't take that into account. And right. that was why it was such a tragedy and such an oversight. For comparison, yeah. just for people who may not know, what were the guidelines at the time for, for lifeboats? So roughly at the time, you needed a minimum of 16 lifeboats if you were over 10,000 tonnes. So Olympic yeah, about was how big is? I was going to say about how big were the... Olympic classes. So Titanic weighed in. I've got it on my notes here because I didn't want to trip myself Ooh. up. So Titanic weighed at a gross tonnage of about 46,000 tonnes. So okay, she so... was four and a half times over the allowance. 
Yeah, not and one, not one and a half, no, a considerable no. amount. So this was where, as well, there were uh, there were conflicts within the hierarchy of Harlingen Wall. So mm-hmm. Thomas Andrews wasn't the original designer. Um, William Perry's brother-in-law, Alexander Carlyle, he was um, the original draftsman, ah, and he made a um, he made the quote allowance for forty lifeboats on board Olympic. And, and Perry said that you know we don't need that many. They clashed, and he ultimately left the company over it. And that was when the uh, job of chief draftsman then fell to Thomas Andrews, who was his nephew. So they made the allowance then that they were going to have 20 lifeboats in total and four of those would be the collapsibles. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, the story of collapsible A as well, I don't know if you know that story, collapsible A was never recovered. So oh. even to this day, we don't know what happened to it. But people said that it probably washed up somewhere, but nobody ever knows. There's still a missing piece of Titanic history out there somewhere. Somewhere out there. Uh... Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, you know, looking back on it from 2022 now, you go, wow, 20 lifeboats for, you know, 2,200 people is absolutely nowhere near enough. But at the time, the regulations were, it's it's, it's just hard to understand without the context of knowing that, like, yeah, it was bigger than anything they even knew they were dealing with. They didn't even have laws for anything of this size just because it did what they weren't around in that size. Or you know, they just didn't come in massive ship yet. No, and as well, I mean, the thing about Titanic was that she was designed to be our own lifeboat. The idea was that if she was going to flood, the watertight bulkheads would stop the flooding to an extent that people could then stay on board whilst another vessel came mm-hmm. to take passengers away. But as we know, with the sinking, uh, that maybe the, the, you know they were too far south in the, the you know original plotted course, and how it all worked out, the Carpathia was four hours away. Right, there just wasn't enough time. Um, but doing some research, they only collided with the iceberg for seven seconds, which doesn't sound like an awful lot of time. But when you then have a two hundred and forty foot gash dotted along the kill. That was where it was, because it wasn't one straight gash and it was dotted, that they had water coming in in too many places. So that was why there was such an issue. Seven seconds uh, is a long time. It's longer than we think it is. Like, if we were to be silent, is. if we were to be silent for seven seconds, it would go on for a while. I want to try that. Hold on. That was seven seconds. That's, That's a pretty long time. It does. But then when you're reading about it, it doesn't seem like an awful amount of time. It's that it's that thing, isn't it? Where it's hard to imagine what it would have been like at the time. It's Right. It, that's seven seconds. And then um, there was another uh, incident as well where uh, some of the uh, firemen saw that the water was coming up through the floor. So mm. another issue was then that they believed that she grounded on a shelf of ice as well under the water level, which then weakened the keel. So it was at that point where there was too much damage uh, and the, t- uh, the tanks would only, the pumps would only pump out about 10% of the water that she was taking in per minute. Oof. So it was no, it got to the point where there was taking on too much water and there was nothing they could do for it. Um, and then, of course, you have the case with the fire as well and the warping of the bulkhead. Um, mm-hmm. So there's too many things going against her at the time. So it's yeah. Well, it's like you wouldn't. It, cars are not super safe. We know that, but you know we drive them anyway. And but you can expect a reasonable amount of safety from a car. 
But if you do something ridiculous, like say launch it off of a cliff, there's only so much you can expect the safety measures in that car to do. Even if all the airbags deploy, et cetera, et cetera. If once you're past a certain point, you can only really hope for the best. And it, again, seven seconds doesn't sound like a long time, but to be making contact with something in a dangerous way, seven seconds is a long time. You can do a lot of damage in seven seconds. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, as as we know, as, right. as the story, mean, yeah, how much damage seven seconds can do. Um, but yeah, and you have all these stories as well, don't you? There's the story about the cancelled uh, drill as well with the lifeboats earlier that yep. day, um, and the lack of visibility. Um, don't know if you've seen the documentary uh, Titanic Case Closed with Tim Moulton, where I he talks about a cold water mirage. So he comes up with a theory that there was a cold water mirage, which distorts the view. So there was no backlit because there was no stars because of the temperature change in the Labrador current. And it wasn't until then that the iceberg came into sight that it was too late. And they believe as well that that mirage, um, when you have the inquiry afterwards with Stanley Lord, who was captain of the uh, uh, Californian, mm-hmm. he thought he saw a fishing vessel. They believe that that could have been Titanic, but because of the mirage distorting the shape, it made the ship look a lot smaller um, than Titanic. So there's too many there's things that are out of human control as well that were going mm-hmm. on at the time. Right. And it just, they believe, and I think as well, I mean, when you say that a ship is unsinkable, you can't market it as that. I mean, ultimately, it was the biggest oversight, I think, in history, yeah. is saying that she was unsinkable. Um, but yeah well it's all that hindsight again where it's like oh yeah you shouldn't do this or yeah you should never say that or of course you would have more lifeboats or why didn't they have binoculars or why wasn't this or there's so many things that you can go back and look at in retrospect and think how it could be done differently but again at the time it was what it was you didn't have gps you couldn't just ask someone to take out their phone and make sure they're in the right place You had to rely on what people told you and maps and pencils. There was a lot less sort of global safety nets. You were very much isolated in your own way. Like you were kind of on an island on your ship and had to rely a lot on what other people told you and what you told other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, the timing of the voyage, she was delayed Mm -hmm. by four weeks because of a, uh, because of the coal strike in Wales where they were, getting the coal from so that then led to a delay in her going off for a maiden voyage and by that time you have the moving ice packs coming further down the coast Mm. so she was sailing right to the thick of the ice pack and maybe if she was a month earlier who knows you know you can't say for certain but like you say it's that hindsight that Mm. if these things hadn't happened would would it you know would the tragedy have ever occurred was the Titanic the only ship that sank in that ice field that year, or was it just the biggest slash most passenger filled? Um, to be honest, that's not something that I've actually looked at. Me neither. I was just um, curious. Yeah, no, uh, well, that's something that I'd be interested in looking at. Um, but yeah, I think certainly to do with the number of passengers and the number of fatalities out of it, she was certainly the biggest disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, for many, well, for a few years. I mean, I think. I don't know if it was eclipsed by the Lusitania when during the First World War when she was sunk by a German U-boat, but uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, that's, again, that's something that I'll have to look into. But 
which is certainly the largest maritime disaster up to that point. And um, again, you know, with the size of the ship being the largest as well in the world at the time. Um, yeah, I think that's... And she, she enforced a lot of changes as well. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, part of the inquiry afterwards, they started to set up the Iceberg Watch, where they would have constant reports. And that's something that still goes on today. You have mm-hmm. uh, Coast Guard um, going out and monitoring the, uh, monitoring the travel of the ice packs down the Labrador Current today. And that's oh, something great. that came out of the 1912 inquiry. Yeah, there's a few things safety-wise that came out of that, weren't there? Yes, there were, yeah. I mean, the number of lifeboats, again, is something that then came into account. Uh, they based it off the number of passengers rather than the weight of the ships. Right. Uh, Olympic would go, uh, Britannic, sorry, would go on to have 46 lifeboats fitted. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's there were massive amounts of changes. Um, and by that point as well, wireless operators were then required to work 24 hours, so they'd have shift rotation. Whereas at the time, as we know, with the Californian, they weren't required to constantly monitor the wireless op- uh, the wireless machines, mm-hmm. which is why the Californian didn't pick up on the signal, the distress signals that Titanic was sending out. Yeah, they were done for the day. They were closed. Yeah, um, and again, I mean, they said that they contacted through, uh, through the Morse lamps, but again, with that mirage theory that Tim Moulton presents, um, the light would have been distorted, so they wouldn't have been able to communicate. Yeah. So. It's, um, yeah, it, it enforced a lot of changes um, that needed to be made because I think the arrogance at the time was um, at such a level that they believed that they could actually control nature. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that disaster then sort of ushered in, it brought into the end of that Edwardian dream that people could conquer because then you then have the two years before into the first world war that Shane goes into again mass conflict and disaster so i think 1912 was the peak of the high life the edwardian edwardian britain the edwardian i said the edwardian world because king edward at the time but mm-hmm. yeah it's that sort of brought in the end of those those good times and it's something now i think that's why we're so obsessed as well is because she was such this believed that everybody believed that she was unsinkable and i think well i think that's why i think that's certainly why i'm interested is that why there's such an oversight yeah after after the inquiry though and before she was refitted as a warship they made some significant modifications to olympic right yes they did yeah so um they had uh, they went back and strengthened um Keel again. Um, they mm-hmm. bought it. She was in dry dock for about six to eight months uh, whilst they made all these safety measures that were changed. Um, and at the time as well, the border trade were making constant visitations out to the dockyards all around Britain because during the build up to Titanic, there was never much interaction between the border trade and the shipyards. Uh, the border trade only showed up when they went off for their sea trials. Oh, that sounds and safe. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, Olympic, she had her entire 24 hours of sea trials. Titanics were only six hours. Um, so because they fit, that she checked off the checklist, they were happy, and that was it. So as far as they were concerned, she was good to go. Great. Um, and it'd be interesting trying to, it'd be interesting to find out why they didn't give the same scrutiny to Titanic as they did to Olympic, whether it was because 
they've already measured one of that size before, so they knew that it was safe. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's quite interesting as well because I mean, you look at the posters, biggest ship that was ever, you know, largest man-made moving object, right? And they really sold that. But she was only three inches longer than Olympic. It's quite so they <laughs> really ran that down. You know, she was eight hundred eighty-two feet nine inches Titanic. Olympic was 882 feet and six inches. So they really sort of sold out on that movie ticket that she was the largest. That's a stretch. That's a, I mean, I guess you're technically right, but oh, come on. It's like what my mom does to me when she's like, I'm taller than you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she says, well, you're five, five and I'm five, five and a half. It's like, no, you're not. That is the dumbest. And it means, and it's no, that's yeah, so it's yeah, and you know, and then Britannica came would go on to be bigger. She was about nine hundred and three feet. So, presumably, <laughs> that was also to do with the safety measures that was then brought in as well after mm-hmm. the inquiry um, to be able to house house the extra lifeboats. So it's yeah, this was a massive gamble. These Olympic class liners that ultimately didn't pay off. Not um, for any of them, because Britannic also sank pretty not on her maiden voyage, but like. She didn't have a long and long career. No, no. I mean, you know, she was instantly requisitioned by the British government and mm-hmm. she never saw the end of the First World War. Um, and she didn't sink in anywhere. She sunk a lot quicker than Titanic mm-hmm. did as well. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, Olympic was the only one that would go on to have the long career. I mean, she was the first British, uh, what is it, liner that was then that would go on to sink a German U-boat. So yep. she was so she was she had quite a successful military career, you know, gained in the nickname of Old Reliable. And then would come back into service up until nineteen thirty four. When she was unceremoniously scrapped. Yeah, along with uh, along with Mauritania at a time mm-hmm. when the decline in ship I think that was the sort of the declining shipping then you then start yeah. to have these new technologies and there wasn't the need and they were so expensive to run because again technology was changing and the types of engines that they were using mm-hmm. it was becoming too costly what did they transition to what was the next big thing so you then had the uh, well i suppose it's, it's the adaptation of the turbine engine that cunard adopted um so yeah it's it just became it just became outdated, and I think nobody mm-hmm. was looking for that level of grandeur anymore. Um, sure, they just served a means to an end that they wanted to get to America or wherever they were going. So, well, it makes yeah, sense because it, you know, even in Titanic itself, um, and I imagine the other um, Olympic class liners, the primary money maker for the White Star Line wasn't the you know rich folk; it was third class and second class who really lined their pockets because they were the ones that were you know really you didn't have to spend as much money on them not to say that you know you didn't serve them they weren't treated like garbage but like they didn't all have i don't know i don't know if everyone had like a personal freaking attendant in first class but it wasn't that level of ridiculous no and actually but then even the conditions in third class on titanic they were better than some second class accommodation on rival ships Mm-hmm. So there was that level of class throughout the ship, and I think that was what White Star Line. They weren't obsessed with speed. They weren't obsessed with 
going after the Blue Ribbon. I mean, it would have been nice if they could beat Cunard and claim the, the Blue Ribbon as well for the fastest crossing. Sure. But as long as the passenger experience was the top level, that was what put them on the map. And that is what they always based their business model off of. Um, and that's why you see such level of detail. I mean, you only have to look at the grand staircase and the carvings around the clock. Um, and she rivaled Europe's biggest hotels. She was like a floating palace. And, yeah. um, you know, you can see by the the willingness of people willing to spend so much for first-class cabins as right. well. Um, and the the level of clientele that they were bringing. I mean, you had John, uh, John Jacob Astor the Fourth. You had Benjamin Guggenheim, uh, Isadora and Ida Strauss. You had these people that were willing to spend their money to travel to America and just to savor the first class experience. Right. But the first of the uh, oh wow words. Uh, the first of the Olympic class liners to hit the water was Britannic, right? No, so it would have been Olympic. Olympic. So you had Olympic oh, good morning. Titanic and then Britannic. When did Olympic um, launch? So her keel was laid in 1907, uh, and she had her maiden voyage in 1909. Uh, 19, I want to say 1910. Uh, let me just check my notes again, just to be safe to say the right thing. But yeah, she. Because um, uh, yeah, you had. Uh, the registry opened in 1911 for Olympic. Okay. So she then went into service from 1911, and then that was then when she had her collisions, and that pushed back the uh, construction of Titanic. So it all fed right. into one another. So her keel was laid soon after the agreement was made between um, Piri and Ismay, and then uh, mm. Titanic would be then laid two years later. When Olympic was launched, I mean, she had the same appointments and luxury as Titanic did, right? Was it as fanfaronatical at the time? That's not a word. If anything, it was more. So um, it wasn't... Harlan and Wolf weren't massive about ceremony with their launches. It was just a matter of uh, firing, launching a flare, and then she'd go down the slipway. It wasn't like the pompous ceremony of breaking the bottle on the bow. Um, but what they did do for Olympics was they painted They just her, set off a shit little firework white. and called it a day. Um, yeah. yeah, that was it. But uh, yeah, Olympic was different. They they painted her white, and there was a bit more of a fanfare, um, which was, hmm. I think, because she was the first of this class. She was the largest at the time. So they wanted to make something of it, and they wanted it to be a spectacle. But as soon as Titanic was launched, you didn't get anywhere near that level of ceremony. Uh, but you still had the crowds. Uh, but even if the workers wanted to be there for the launch, they had to be willing to sacrifice half a day's pay. They weren't going to be given the day to go and see this ship that they created be launched, because uh, that would be too generous. They went if they wanted to go, then you had to buy your That's ticket, so and rude. you had to. Uh, that was the way of the world at the time. That is so rude. I don't... I, ugh, mean. 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 
that's just hateful. Like, hey, we stole, not stole, you gave us your literal physical well-being and so much of your time. Also, sorry about the burn marks on your everything. Have a nice life. You can watch the ship from your house yeah. if you can see it. Yeah, it's, um, and that was why you had, on the launch of Olympic, those that were building Titanic at the time didn't take the day to go and watch the launch. They carried on with the construction because they couldn't afford to lose the money. No. No, I mean, you're working long, grueling hours, and then you were expected to lose half a day's pay to go and watch an hour to an hour and a half. Yeah, it's... It just make much. It, well, it wouldn't have made much sense financially for them. So, but yeah, that was the way of the world. Piri was, he was tight fisted, a bit like uh, he was. The, yeah, he was a bit like Scrooge. He doesn't sound like the world's most generous, and that that was part of the uh, the, the 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 controversy with the Duff Gordons and their lifeboat. Right? Was that? The sailor was pointing, one of the crewmen was pointing out, it's like, we don't get paid anymore. Like, Titanic went underwater, and we, this is it for us. Like, we're, we don't have any money yeah. anymore. We've lost our, we've lost everything with that ship. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, uh, I work for uh, a gentleman here in Dorset. We work down at the local fossil museum, and his relative was actually first class bedroom steward on Titanic. And um, he got, when he got back to Southampton, he got half pay because the voyage wasn't completed. So they weren't willing to offer the full pay packet that he would have received. Um, But yeah, I mean, he was an interesting figure. One of those that was under the duty of his care, he saw to Benjamin Guggenheim and Mm -hmm. he uh, reported to Thomas Andrews as well. So he was one of the leading men that was uh, questioned at the inquiry in New York. uh, I'm sure they wanted to talk to him. Yeah, so he was um, yeah, questioned quite heavily about Andrews, uh, Thomas Andrews' movements uh, and what he did after the uh, sink uh, during the sinking. But yeah, he um, he never would, you know, he didn't get the pay that he was due by the time they got back to Southampton, and that was well, also awful. part of why the survivors' fund was set up as well. You had Molly Brown mm-hmm. setting up the survivors' fund. Uh, to help with the widows and those that were left behind in Southampton as well, because they didn't have that pay coming in anymore. Yeah, and that's I mean, awful. I mean, we, you wouldn't stand for that now. There, people would be there would be riots in the streets if that happened today. But you know, it was just as you keep as you said, it was the way of the world. It's just how it was. It was you know, well, you don't like it, tough luck. That you know, that ship sank, bud. Literally, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely wild. I think concept. as well that was. It is, and like you say, I mean, you'd never get away with that sort of action now. Uh, no, like you say, couldn't make the dining room the... attendants on a cruise ship. You can't make, yeah, you can't make the entertainment staff on a cruise ship responsible for it getting back to port. That's not their job. No, no, um, and. But then, like we say, you know, it was a different time, and they were so reliant upon these firms that they just, if it if it meant that they could get a job again in the future, they just kept quiet. Yeah. Because you know, the sooner you speak out, the more likely you are to 
not find employment with the same company again. That's true. And I feel that's a large portion of why during the inquiry, there was a lot of pressure for the surviving employees of the White Star Line to stick to that. It did not break in half story because it was like, even if you wanted to tell the truth, you know, you, you, you needed money. Yeah, absolutely. And as well, you know, that's why none of the firemen who survived came forward either. You have the story about the uh, coded telegrams that Esme was, say, uh, was sending to New York um, to keep them from talking. And they wouldn't have spoken out out of fear of not getting employed again. Mm-hmm. Remember, I heard that they basically sequestered Lightoller. They were like, nope, nope, nope. This man goes nowhere without an escort. This man says nothing to nobody. He has no comment. Because they were just like, mm, this is the highest surviving office. They're, they're going to have questions for him. And we need to have that story where we need it. Yeah, and it's interesting as well, because I was reading the uh, transcript to the New York inquiry. And uh, Ismay is he's very cagey when he comes onto the stand. But he says he starts off his uh, statement by saying that we welcome the inquiry and that we've got nothing to hide. There's nothing for us to uh, keep from you. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's that theory that, okay, we're going to be open with you, but it will only be our version of the account. Yeah, whenever I do something I know I've done wrong, the first thing I do is walk into a room and go, I did everything right today. Yeah. Nobody asks any questions. It's a natural instinct, isn't it? It's, you look out for yourself, don't you? Because, I mean, given in the same scenario, I mean, you know, you would you'd, you'd make you'd want to make sure that you're protecting yourself wouldn't you because if especially if you've got an in such a reputation that is made in the white star line had developed over these years you wouldn't want that to sink as well yeah. as it would go on to anyway but um yeah it would be you'd want to protect your interests uh to ensure that to ensure survival yeah and like it's going to sound like unrelated, but I was driving the other day and I have terrible road rage. I don't display it, but I get very angry in traffic, which is a great trait to have when you live in a major city. But I realized the other day that if people were able to have magic powers on this planet, I shouldn't be one of them because I would just use it to move cars out of my way. And that's super selfish because <laughs> that's looking out for no one but me. But that also is that sort of realization where it's like, Everyone has that selfish streak in them, no matter whether it's preserve your reputation or because you you think you're in a hurry, whatever it is. Everyone has that at their core. It's like you need to protect yourself or in anything you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know that there's plenty of scenarios where I would have put myself first. And I think like you said, it's just natural instincts. And mm-hmm. um you just had to protect the interests at the time. I mean, you didn't know how this was all going to play out either at the time. You, you know, you didn't know whether the White Star Line was going to survive. Um, you weren't sure whether or not that J.P. Morgan would withdraw his funding um, because he couldn't be caught in a scandal. Mm. It was J.P. Morgan didn't want to be caught in a scandal. Mm. Uh, it's everything was hanging by a thread, and yeah. you wouldn't want to. You didn't want to sort of. You didn't want everything to come crashing down, burning down around you. Um, yeah. 
which ultimately it did anyway, because, uh, I mean, you know, you, know, you have to go and look at the merger with QNI to see how it all played out for the end of the White Star Line. But, um, yeah, it's... And again, you know, this level of disaster has never happened before. Uh, right. So uh, the, at the time of the inquiry in New York, the British were outraged that America was launching an inquiry first because they saw it as a British ship right. and that they wanted to be the first. So you had Senator Smith and the committee there in New York um, meeting Ismay and the rest of the survivors off the Carpathia. And then that was when he was, as soon as he stepped down the gangway from Carpathia, he was then launched with a summons notice that he was going to be uh, questioned at an inquiry. Right. And then in August 1912, up in London, you then have Lord Mersey setting up the British inquiry into the sinking. Right. So it was almost within the space of six months, you've got numerous sources trying to gather as many um, accounts. And like you say, nobody believed that she split. Right. Well, the women and children all did. Yeah, and nobody would listen. And Why would they? Was, They're just hysterical. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, it wasn't the fact that that wasn't believed until for another 73 years. I mean, you only have to look at the film Raise the Titanic, mm-hmm. uh, which comes up again in one piece. You know, it's all before all the facts were known. Yeah, that wasn't solidified until Ballard himself went down there and saw it with his own two eyes and brought back evidence like, look what I found. Yeah. And a bunch and of a bunch of women were vindicated. <laughs> yeah, and I think as well, Harland and Wolf believed that they'd built a strong enough ship as well that she wouldn't mm-hmm. have split, but it just wasn't designed to deal with that strain. And it just was never Again, I mean, you know, you haven't seen ships of this size. You wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to stress. You wouldn't have been able to stress test them to that extent. No, I mean, in the same way that I can't expect my car to survive a boulder falling on it. It's simply not designed that way. Its roof is not reinforced that way. Even if I, you know, you do everything you can to prevent it, if a boulder is going to fall on your car, what, what, what are you supposed to do about that? Besides get out, if you can. Exactly. And then that goes back to what I was saying earlier as well. You know, she had every safety measure and, you know, she was designed for every eventuality conceivable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the events of that night were inconceivable. Yeah, and it's like you said, we, man thought they could conquer nature. And I think that we're learning even now with things, how many natural disasters have we experienced in the past five to ten years that have just taken our breath away from, like, Hurricane Katrina to California wildfires. There's just nature is a devastating force, and you can't argue with it. No, and I think as well, there's always been that obsession to try and control it. Yeah, it's just just never going to happen. And um, yeah, I think that was the main thing. You know, they genuinely believe that they can control. The outcome these ships were unsinkable um but yeah it's um just uh one it was just one disaster after another that yeah. ultimately led to what had happened and it's disappointing when when you think about it not just in terms of oh it was really a pretty ship but in terms of the fact that 1500 people had to die 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it says something when you have to have that level of disaster for regulations to be changed accordingly. I mean, yeah, looking back, you know, it's that evidence of hindsight again. If anything was, you know, if you were to have these sort of structures again where we're going to see these large objects uh, being built, the safety measure would be changed instantly. Mm-hmm. But then, again, would it have been that naivety if something like this hadn't happened before? Would we be willing to change safety measures now? No. I mean, it's, it's, well, as to... they say, every regulation is written in somebody's blood. And it's really, really funny slash sad to think about it when you see some warning signs. You're like, ha ha, who was that written for? You're like, something for something that went really wrong. Like, I saw a stroller. Uh, many years ago and I'll never forget this because I saw the, the warning label on the sign as I was walking by and it was a collapsible one you know the kind where you break it down and it turns to a car seat and it yeah. has in big letters it says step one remove baby and <laughs> because I'm a terrible human being I started laughing immediately um, but then I thought about it a little later on it was like wait somebody really folded up their child into that thing didn't they ah jeez we're just like, I don't have children. And even I would have thought that that was a profoundly obvious thing. But sometimes you're just not thinking, like I get migraines sometimes. And when I have migraines, I have done and said some wild stuff, nothing dangerous, but where I'm kind of like, oh, if I'd been doing something semi-dangerous, this probably wouldn't go well for me. So I can see how stuff like that happens to people. And it's really unfortunate that sometimes accidents happen and things happen but it's really unfortunate when accidents happen that could have had something done to mitigate it like maybe we couldn't have avoided the iceberg with titanic but maybe we could have had more lifeboats yeah and like you say you know the number of hours that wireless operators were then needed to be at their mm-hmm. station you know if that had been brought in sooner who knows what might have happened right all these things yeah um you know, I think the safety measures were there, but everything went against them. Mm-hmm. And and, like you said, it's all about the protocols of the time and everything is different now. Like, What a concept that we could have, for example, if air traffic controllers at like 9 p.m. were just like, all right, good night. And then just left until 7 a.m. the next day. You couldn't do that. It would be an abandoned. <laughs> You're abandoning your freaking post. You can't do that. But at the time, it was totally normal to be like, all right, good night. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going down for the night, but... I suppose as well, they believed that that was okay because at the time they had the Morse lamp. So, yeah, what could possibly go wrong with yeah. lights it's... and fog and the water? Nothing bad ever happens at night on the water. No, well, yeah, so they believed. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, I mean, you have the um, the conversation as well where they said that they were going to send Olympic back as well to go and pick what up the a concept what uh, no I mean, could you imagine surviving no disasters like that and then being so saved by a ship that is identical exactly like you leading a survivor down a staircase to her cabin and hers pausing ma'am what's wrong this was our cabin it's like oh oh no we've gone we've gone horribly wrong <laughs> Because that was yes, so, violently traumatic. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, there was also there was there were a fair few ships as well around at the time. We had the Mount Temple as well, which was too far out. Carpathia was the only one that responded that could be there 
uh, in a fairly quick time. Um, but again, that four hours just wasn't quick enough. No, and it's like four hours, and like four hours is long in the same way that seven seconds is long. Like when you when you don't have time, any amount of it is too long. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the freezing conditions around you. I went to the uh, not too long ago. I went to the artifact exhibition that was in London, mm. uh, and they had a uh, they had the ice wall. And it says this is what the temperature of the water would have been like. So it's mm-hmm. trying to see if you can put your hands against it and see how long you can survive. And most people would keep their hands on there for about three seconds. Uh, it was just so cold and it made you feel numb. And mm-hmm. it took me about three hours to get the feeling back into my hand again after touching it. <laughs> and so as soon as you're in that water, you're not going to survive for long. No. When I was really little, my family and I were on... I don't know. We weren't on vacation, but I think we were like driving through somewhere and it was cold, but there was a pool. And for some reason we decided we were going to jump in. And this is like winter cold. I don't mean like set, like reasonable temperature. It was like, this is stupid, but we're going to do it like the polar bear plunge because we're idiots. And we did. And I jumped in right next to the ladder because I knew I was going to want to get out immediately. And even planning to like the plan was to go like okay jump grab ladder get out it, it took me longer than that because you jump in and you're just like oh, oh, oh. you can't sh- breathe no it's that shock mm-hmm. um and yeah it was just i think they said it took about seven minutes for hypothermia to set in Ugh, uh, I can't. Water. and you know you weren't going to last any longer than half an hour because you'd eventually shut down and that was ultimately what happened. Um, it's you, know, you, the, you hear the accounts of the Mackay Bennett going out afterwards oh to go in. And it was just, I mean, I couldn't even imagine the scenes that they would have seen. The Mackay Bennett is one of those things that I want to look into, but I'm also a bit reticent to look into for that reason. Yeah, I mean, um, I've read a couple of the accounts mm-hmm. and it's just, you just can't comprehend it. It's no. uh, uh, seeing just this devastation, but there being no other evidence. That was, th- I think, that's the thing. You know, there's no other evidence. Yeah, the ship's gone, um, and that was the trail of destruction that she left behind. For anyone who's unfamiliar, the the Mackie Bennett was the ship contracted to go to the debris field, Titanic's debris field, and recover bodies. Yeah, and um, one of my you know, favorite things to do on a Sunday afternoon. Yes, it's um, uh, you know just having salvaging some of the bodies, burying at sea. It's just it was just something that you, I can't comprehend, and I don't think many people could um, either. And um, yeah. it's the fact that they had to make those decisions to be like, this one's this one's fresh enough to come back to shore. This one is not. Like... No. Also, I mean, the, the world came to a standstill when she sunk, but the world also carried on. Yeah. You hear the accounts of a German liner that, were going, that was going back through past its debris field and passengers were looking over the, over the uh, uh, barrier and one passenger on board said that she just saw the sight that you never forget, and that was a mother still cradling her baby. And 
that was despite the disaster the world still carried on yeah which is i mean uh, it's it's really you think about these moments in time now and you kind of wonder how did you move on but you have to because you know i'm from the states and you know 9-11 happened and the world kind of came to a standstill but on the other hand it didn't like i think i went back to school the next day and everything had to carry on as normal not because everyone forgot but just because it's like we can't the world isn't allowed to stand still and sometimes i wish that it was but yeah and i think as well you know for the next two days people were still unaware as to what really happened mm-hmm. um Back in Belfast, you were hearing conflicting reports that Titanic had been towed into New York Harbour and that she was okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, other reports were saying that she'd sunk um, and they weren't sure to the extent of how many fatalities there were. Right. Um, and again, at the time, because you, you didn't get the information instantly. You know, right. technology today, you don't get, like you do today when you get the, in- the information instantly. That just wasn't the case. No. So you had queues outside the White Star offices in New York. You had queues outside the White Star offices in Liverpool. Um, family members of the shipyard and shipyard workers were queued at the door of the offices of Harlan and Wolf. Nobody could tell them anything. Yeah. It's not like today when you can just listen to a podcast about the news that happened last week. You know, the world was, it moved slower. It moved slower and it it's... It's just so interesting to think about because now, you know, Titanic is this worldwide phenomenon. We have Facebook communities, Reddit communities, Twitter, Instagram. There's communities everywhere of people who are fascinated by the ship and who are writing books and making drawings and like you writing their theses and make and um, publishing academic papers about the Titanic. They keep this a legacy alive in this really, really interesting way that's weaving technology through it. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm I'm really grateful that you came on to talk to me about this because I didn't know very much and still don't know very much about the construction of the ship. So I'm probably going to have to drag you back on here at some point. But Absolutely. thank you so much for for letting me talk at you for an hour or so. <laughs> thank you for having me on. It's been really enjoyable. Oh. I don't know about you guys, but I learned a ton from Ben and I have about a million more questions. I always have so many more questions for my guests. It's like, I'm, it's like, I'm not ready to let them go yet. Cause I, I think of a million other things I want to ask, but, um, if you want to get in touch with Ben, the best way to do so would be to get in touch with him on Twitter. His username is at Ben J underscore Blackwood. That is B E N J underscore B L A C K W O O and he is a PhD student with a thesis examining Secretarianism, Harlan and Wolf, and Titanic. So he's definitely a lot smarter than I am about all this stuff. So if you have any questions for him, please get in touch, ask him all the things. And if you have any questions for me or want to tell me why I'm wrong about something, email me at titanictalkline at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with me there if you want to come on the show. Uh, you can also reach out to me on all the social medias. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Titanic Talkline. Get in touch and I will see you next time. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. 
If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!